0: The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And tonight is week six of our seven week winter Buddhist studies course on the seven factors of awakening. And tonight we'll be discussing tranquility and concentration. And then next Monday night we'll take up the last of the seven factors, equanimity, this beautiful, radiant balance of the mind and heart, this unflappable balance. And it's a very dynamic, it's not a static balance. And before we go on, uh, you might remember last week, I asked if anybody in the community would be willing to share some reflections on Dāna, generosity this beautiful circle of giving and receiving and as many of you know the center has chosen to operate for the last 30 years this is our 30 year anniversary with this principle and it's worked pretty well for us and it's so aligned with the buddhist teaching so i was really appreciative that steve hilson agreed to share a few paragraphs i'll send it out in uh, we uh, email later in the week, but let me just read these two paragraphs from Steve. His own reflections. And uh, if ever you want to offer your reflections, you know, this is a kind of open invitation for those of you who've been around for two, three or more years and feel really connected with the community. It's nice to hear how you personally have been relating and learning from this practice of generosity. And of course, it isn't just in terms of how you relate to the center and the teachers at the center. It's really just a governing uh, value in our lives. And hopefully, we realize what a powerful cause for happiness it is. In the same way that if we lived with the governing principle of stinginess, we would have a lot to say about how it's a cause for suffering in our lives and being tight. Right? It's This is... Uh, as uh, one of our elders manindiji this indian man who was an important teacher for a lot of our teachers like joseph goldstein and kamala masters and many others um, after learning from Mahasi Saida in burma even though he was an indian man he was i think in the civil service in burma eventually moved back to bodhgaya and uh, taught at the burmese Vihara at bodhgaya with the place of the buddhist enlightenment it's a pilgrimage site And a lot of the Buddhist countries have um, houses or kind of dormitories for pilgrims to stay. And so he sort of helped run the Burmese um, dormitory there in Bodhgaya. And a lot of Westerners back in the 60s and early 70s went to practice with him. And uh, he's known for saying a lot of things, including the Buddha's done his work. Now it's your turn (laughs) to do your work. practice yeah. so let me just read what Steve had to say here I have not really thought of myself as a generous person I've often wanted to be generous and I've certainly wanted to be seen by others as generous but the truth is my giving has been largely transactional or driven by habit and custom but maybe I'm growing just a little bit Since joining the Khamagraan community a few years ago, I've witnessed almost unbelievable generosity, taking the forms of money. How did that lovely retreat facility ever get built? Service. How many inches of snow did volunteers move in the first two months of this winter? And goodwill. You know who you are. The young couple who invited me to tea after they saw me weeping during my very first visit at Khamagraan. But most especially, I've witnessed the generosity of the teachings offered day after day, week after week for decades, or should I say millennia, without obligation. And so Common Ground is teaching me generosity by example. I'm still a work in progress, a slow and sometimes stubborn student. I still measure and keep score sometimes. I still find my habits elbowing their way in. And I'm still easily confused. How much is enough? What form is best? Do I give till it hurts? The same way some charitable organizations urge, but I'm finding my way. I think I want to give not until it hurts, but until it feels good. I think we should have that as our logo. <laughs> Don't give until it hurts. Give until it feels good. So let me just continue reading. Until it feels right, feels that it is what I can do without neglecting my other responsibilities until I can feel my heart loosening up, which I'm learning it does. And I want to give it away that assures that Common Ground can, can continue its work, teaching us all to be more free. So thanks again, Steve. That's such a beautiful sharing about this central practice of dana, generosity. And it's not just you know, an excuse for us to talk about money, right, it's really, it is. it goes right to the heart of things, including the topic tonight, tranquility. I mean, just try to have tranquility when you're operating um, motivation is stinginess and trying to stay at the top of the heap and, you know, prepare for every possible scenario, you know, like, will i be okay if absolutely everything goes wrong (laughs) like any possible earthquake any possible financial tragedy crisis you know and that is how we create hell realms not just for ourselves but for the whole world i'll just share one little story about generosity just Cause it's so fun and I, I don't remember where I heard this or who came up with this it might have been in a book I read a long time ago uh, somebody I think her name was Dorothy Bryant and it, the title was something like the kid of Atta or waiting or something like that and it's uh, sort of a sci-fi book uh, she was a San Francisco writer and I lived in the Bay Area and I came across her someone told me about her anyway in this book Possibly in this book, I'm not sure if it's from that. There's uh, a story about heaven and hell, and uh, in one, you know, you go to sort of a lobby, and there's a door on the right and a door on the left, and one door is to hell and the other's to heaven. And uh, yeah, this is this is a little riff on what was in the book. So this isn't exactly in the book as I remember now, but anyway, in heaven. Um, or, let, first, I'll just say hell. In hell, everyone's there. There's a beautiful banquet table, delicious food, piping hot. But everyone has boards taped to their arms, right? So they can't get the food to their mouths. So they're kind of jostling with each other, grabbing a bowl of hot soup, lifting it up, spilling it all over them, burning themselves, you know, throwing food up in the air and trying to catch it. And it's a mess. It's really hell. And then in the other room, the room that goes to heaven, exactly the same situation, big banquet table, lots of delicious piping hot food. People got boards taped to their arms so they can't bend their elbows or get food right, bring their food right to their mouths with their hands, but they're feeding each other. (laughs) And, you know, it's just a silly example, but, you know, it really, if we live with that sort of animal survival instinct as the in the forefront as our kind of operating principle well they're very i mean it's totally okay to live that way because we are in fact animals and that those kind of instincts habits will get triggered for sure at time it's just a question how often and a question of whether we pay attention to like how does that work for us and what does that set emotion and are we okay with that but that sets a motion for us and for those around us in the entire world. And then what happens if we have a different perspective where we're in this together and we're taking care of each other and uh, we pay attention to what we receive and the joy that comes from receiving what we receive and we pay attention to what we give and the joy of what the joy we feel in giving. And lo and behold, a lot of the work of tranquility is knowing how to keep goodness in mind. It really matters what we pay attention to. And, you know, one of the instructions, uh, one of the articles I sent along um, in the email I sent out to everybody today is an article that uh, it's probably a transcription of a talk that Ajahn Tanisaro, this Western Buddhist monk, abbot of Wat Metta, outside of San Diego, a Buddhist monastery there. Um, He wrote probably 20 years ago called Bathed in the Breath. I encourage you to read it. I mean, it's more specifically about breath meditation, but it's really, you could use any object of meditation. He's just talking about practice in terms of breath meditation, but in particular the importance of the pleasure of concentration and, I mean, uh, the uh, ease of tranquility and the peace of concentration. So I'm just going to read different parts of this um, short, it's probably just 10 pages. When the breath comes in, you know it's coming in. When it goes out, you know it's going out try to make that experience of the breath fill your awareness as much as possible. So we use a neutral, I mean, mostly for us, a neutral experience because we want to access the experience of fullness, not holding back, filling the mind, right? Because when we are willing to fill the mind with something ordinary, like being with the breath, and we could use the totality of our experience, it's just for some of us, would be a a more difficult first step. So maybe you want to go with an open awareness of the totality of your experience, or maybe you want to use something neutral, like feeling the breath coming in, feeling the breath going out. But what's important is that fullness of awareness, because that feels good. He goes on, This I'm skipping around a little as I move through the chapter. He writes, each time you breathe in, Each time you breathe out, remind yourself to stay with the breath. Make just a little mental note. This is where you want to stay. This is where you want to stay. And again, it's not about the breath. It's about the fullness of presence. And we're just using the physicality of breathing in and out as a training ground to realize that fullness of presence, that inclusive presence. But right now, The inclusiveness is just with the breath as a training mechanism. And then later he writes, And try not to think of yourself as inhabiting one part of the body watching the breath in another part of the body. Think of the breath as all around you. And then a little later writes, If you're in one part of the body watching the breath in the other part, you're probably blocking the breath energy to make space for that sense of you and the part of the body that's watching. So think of yourself as totally surrounded by the breath, bathed in the breath. And then survey the whole body to see where there are still sections of the body that are tense or tight that are preventing the breath from coming in and going out. Allow them to loosen up. So this invitation to soften. It's like uh, the Buddha uses different images, but about a willingness to allow that good feeling, like a lubricant, to spread, to affect more and more of the body and mind. He writes, there's just the quality of fullness that's bathed by the breath coming in, bathed by the breath going out. So in a way, what becomes the object of awareness is the pleasant fullness. And the rhythm of the breath is just sort of touching or resonating, supporting that sense of fullness as we breathe in, breathe out. In a way, you know, we learn to keep in mind well-being. A little later, he writes, this is why... The ability to stay with the sensation is so important, for your staying with them is what allows them to grow. And then he goes on to talk about this enlarged, open, inclusive awareness. He writes, if your awareness is limited to just one tiny, or one little spot, everything gets squeezed out. Everything else gets blotted out. And what is that, if not ignorance? You're trying to make your awareness 360 degrees all around in all directions. Because the habit of mind is to focus on its awareness in one spot here, then one spot there moving around. But there's always the one spot, one spot, one spot. It opens up a little bit and then squeezes off again, opens up a little bit, squeezes off again, and nothing has a chance to grow. But if you allow things to open up throughout the whole body, you realize that if you think about anything at all, uh, if you think about anything at all, you destroy that openness. Right? So it's a powerful feedback mechanism because as soon as we take the attention off that sense of openness or fullness and get involved in any conceptual activity, including I'm me trying to meditate, we feel the constriction because it's not a fullness openness. It's a me who thinks of doing a good job or a bad job at meditating, or whatever conception, whatever thought the mind gets lost in. He goes on to talk about, you know, how we're not that patient, you know, and he he basically talks about western society in particular maybe are especially good at being impatient um, and he gives the example of when you know he practiced in thailand for a couple decades as a monk and uh, there were you know people in the village they didn't have fancy tools and but there would be one person who had become really competent at sharpening knives using a stone and just how to get it just right and not uh, ruin the knife because, you know, you can make an uneven blade or something like that. And so many things in life, it just takes time, takes that kind of loyalty. We have to be loyal to the good feeling that's available. We have to develop confidence and then we have to keep it in mind. And what we tend to do in meditation, and, you know, we get this instruction a lot, you know, well, if the mind is um, overrun by negativity, well, you look at the negativity and you feel the underlying feeling and you see it, it come and go. You see that it's not personal. It's just aversion or just greed or just whatever that afflictive or tormenting state of mind is. It's just that. And you kind of pop it and then you look for the next bad guy and you bring your attention to that. But that's not the only thing we do, right? Because what really makes that work of seeing the unskillful habits for what they are, things that come and go and are not self, is having a lot of tranquility. Nothing supports insight like tranquility because it creates the appropriate contrast when there's a lot of ease, a lot of peace, a lot of stillness, then when anything even subtly agitating, subtly um, tight, shows up in our heart, body, mind, it just stands out. You know, it's like if you have a pure white sheet and someone drops a tiny drop of ink on the white sheet, pretty easy to see it, even if it's just a tiny drop because of the contrast. If we have a mind, a heart, that's really peaceful, easeful, then if some disturbing, if the mind gets identified with some disturbing thought or some painful sensation, that constriction really stands out. And we can see, oh, it arises, it passes, it's not self. It's just something that comes and goes, and is nature, not self. There's so much freedom in that. He gives the example here. I'll just read this. At the same time, it heals all our mental wounds. He's talking about tranquility. Any sense of tiredness, of being stressed out, mistreated, abused. It's like medicine for these mental wounds. Now, medicine often takes time to work, especially soothing and reconstituting medicine. Think of the creams you put on chap' skin. The skin isn't immediately cur- cured when you first rub on the cream. It takes time. The skin has to be exposed to the cream for a long period, for long periods of time, to allow the cream to do its work. The same is true. The same with concentration. It's a treatment that takes time. Your nervous system needs to be exposed to the sense of fullness. For a long period of time, giving it a chance to breathe in, breathe out all around, so that the mindfulness and the breath together can do their healing work. And you know, (laughs) we have to expect some pushback. Um, Joseph Goldstein, I think, gave this example of loving kindness practice, you know, when we just have a, a lot of ingrained hostility and irritation and frustration and anger and rage and other sort of aversive qualities and then we bring in some loving kindness he likened it to sort of a drop of cool water hitting red hot metal you know there's going to be a response like and it's the same thing you know when we keep tranquility in mind when we bring it to mind and we sense it will we'll feel some pushback like the mind's allegiance to agitation and reactivity and intensity and all the different ways that we're familiar with the feeling of being tight and constricted and reactive and hot and bothered and it will feel like the tranquility is like an abomination like how dare you suggest ease you know don't you realize that life is intense you know this this doesn't fit so we have to begin to cultivate an allegiance a trust even if initially it's just an open-mindedness about tranquility maybe who knows but maybe it's appropriate to trust tranquility and peace and calm and it's like we acquire a taste. And in that image that Joseph Goldstein used about a drop of cool water hitting red-hot metal, if we cease heating that red-hot metal up, right, planting seeds, paying attention in ways that causes that heat of agitation, then the cool water is going to cool it down. It may take some time. It will cool it down. And so this uh, acquiring a taste for tranquility, really learning to trust it, this sense of fullness. This is a little transmission from Sharon Salzberg in her wonderful book, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness. Right near the beginning of the book, she writes, Great fullness of being, which we experience as happiness, can also be described as love. To be undivided and unfragmented, to be completely present, is to love. To pay attention is to love. So again, the proximate cause for tranquility, Pasadi is the Pali phrase. That's that calm, that serenity, composure, peacefulness. The proximate cause, right, is the appropriate or wholesome attention to what supports tranquility. And the supporting cause for tranquility is recognizing the qualities of tranquility. And the thing is, you know, we kind of approach this where I'm irritated that there's no tranquility. What's in the way? And we want to immediately look at what's in the way of tranquility instead of sensing Almost like in the background, the potential, the seeds of peace, calm, contentment, tranquility. How about now? And of course, if the mind presents some doubt, don't go to war with the doubt. It's almost like we choose to look right through the doubt. No, 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 I'm interested in the seeds of tranquility the possibility of peacefulness, some semblance of ease and serenity here and now in the space of this body, heart, and mind. And we can begin at the grosser level, this embodied calm and ease in the body, and then just uh, mental tranquility, the calm of mental activity, the relative settledness of the mind, the thinking mind, and then even in a more deep way, the peace and stillness of the space, the empty space, the silent, peaceful space of the mind itself. So in a way, there's three levels of tranquility, bodily, energetic tranquility, you know, just the nervous system, feeling at ease, like, don't need to move, okay, being still in the body. We hear a sound behind us, and we feel the impulse to turn our head and look, but yeah, but we don't have to. Right? We can be content hearing the sound, feeling the impulse to turn the head, and just be tranquil with all that that is but just to feel the body settled. I really strongly encourage and follow through this in my own life, encourage us all to relax every day, like to put aside five to 20 minutes, maybe a little bit more, and practice being physically relaxed. So I lie down, more recently I've been lying down with um, my calves on a couch, so my knees are at a right angle, back on the floor on a carpet piece of carpet and a little pillow under my head arms comfortably to the sides and i do my little mindful relaxation every day at least once it's so pleasant like what i mean i know some of you are busy busier than me maybe but it just seems like so much nicer than a nice tv show or a good meal i mean it's like real pleasure the pleasure of, I mean, it's a practice, right? Because it can be initially hellish. If you think you got 10,000 things to do, it can feel like a violation to, of all those things you think you have to do to lie down for five minutes or 10 minutes. But you'll learn to like it and learn to see, sense the healing qualities of abiding in a settled State of body, a body that feels ease, and then in a more subtle way, it's getting familiar with a mind, this part of the mind that is active—the mind that thinks and imagines and perceives and feels and concocts, mix up stuff, plans and problem solves—and it's like, yeah, absolutely, the mind can do all of that. It's not necessarily wrong, but it's also so nice to put that down, right? It's a, a nice uh, image of this is a story I heard once about the wish-fulfilling tree. Many of you have heard me say it. I'll just say it quickly. But, you know, this the idea is a person under the hot, hot sun longs for the cool shade of a tree and Sure enough, just around the turn, this person sees a beautiful shade tree, kind of grassy underneath. They go hang out into the tree, just so pleasant being out of the sun, really. And then the mind thinks, oh gosh, it would be so nice to have a cool beverage. And sure enough, somebody comes by with some cool beverages and offers him a nice wonderful drink. And then the Person imagines what oh, would be so nice to have a picnic here, and sure enough, some delicious fruit is there in the tree to eat, and other delicious foods just happen to be sitting there on the ground and The person may imag- oh, it would be so nice to have a good friend here to share this with and hang out with under the cool shade of the tree, drinking delicious beverages and eating good food and sure enough, a wonderful friend shows up and they're having a good time. And the person thinks, well, this seems a little suspicious, all this good stuff happening. I wonder if there's a demon in this tree. And sure enough, he looks up, he sees, yes, in fact, there's a terrible demon up in the tree. Then he wonders, I wonder what that demon's up to. I wonder if it's going to eat me up. And sure enough, the demon eats him up. And this is just a a vivid example of our concocting mind. And in the Eastern view of things... Buddhism, you know, sort of has the same philosophical roots. You know, here in the West, we are infected with ideas or fundamentalist ideas of materialism. And maybe in the East, they have their fundamentalist idea of whatever the not-materialism would be called. But, you know, that it's really this, this is the mind. And it arises in the mind as opposed to the mind arises out of materialism, you know, the brain, and then there's consciousness, and then there's all that arises. And the mind is just some little reverberation of materialism. And uh, But the Eastern view of things, philosophical view, is that a better, more skillful, not necessarily metaphysical truth, but more skillful uh, way to relate to this is as if it's all here. Here and now, arising, being known where? Well, in the mind. So whatever reality is, it's a moment of the mind. This reality is a moment of mind. It's arising here, something, my experience, is being known here, in the mind, in the heart. And whether there's some... So called external reality or materialism or whatever that would be. those are just thoughts in my mind here and now, and we don't actually have to that seem that sort of subjective reality seems pretty commonsensical to me when you reflect on it and it really uh brings to mind that it matters what we're interested in, it matters what we pay attention to. So maybe, especially this week, as we finish up our course in the seven factors, you know, I've been encouraging us all to take some time, if not every day, um, you know, as often as possible, and just to reflect on all seven factors. Take 30 seconds to a couple minutes for each of the seven factors. Bring them to mind so that you're interested in it in real time, that factor. And in particular this week, the factors of tranquility and concentration. And with tranquility, the difference between the two, you know, obviously they're related. Tranquility is more the pleasantness of that bodily and mental ease, that bodily and mental subtleness, that contentment and the pleasure of that, the simplicity of the body, the simplicity of the mind that's not agitated. And that leads to the realization of samadhi, which is realizing the mind, the mind's, the space of the mind as empty, empty of what's not there. So we're sort of, it's it's an insight to see the mind empty because when we hear that word mind or heart we notice the activity of the mind because it's grosser so it's easy oh yeah i'm perceiving this i'm thinking this i'm feeling this in the mind in the heart but we can train the mind to be interested especially when there's tranquility of mental activity and tranquility of bodily activity then, like some of you remember from our study of the Anapanasati Sutta, the 16 steps, then we can do the third set of four instructions. Remember, breathing in, aware of the mind, the space of the mind, breathing out, aware of the space of the mind, gladdening, concentrating, liberating the space of mind. Right? And it's really because there's tranquility with mental and bodily activities Things have settled, like a snow globe settles. Then we see the empty space. Oh, this is the mind. Empty of doing. Empty of scheming and concocting. Oh, this has been missed for a long time. And once it's seen deeply enough times, then it's hard for the mind to forget its empty nature. Just like when we feel bodily calm, we have a kind of a deep memory of it. You know, we have a really nice sauna and jump in the lake and get in the heat and jump in the lake or get a good massage or have some good healthy exercise, but we don't don't overdo it and we just feel that ease. The body feels so good. And it's just like content not to move. You know, you sit down, it's like I don't think I'm ever going to move again. But there's a kind of an energetic buzz in the body from the good work we've done physically. Same with the mind. And then the deeper tranquility, the deeper peace, is really that stillness of concentration or samadhi. Of course, there's much more to say, and there's some good resources that you can study uh, in the email to dig in a little deeper with tranquility and insight, including... Joe Shepard's and Joseph Goldstein talks on those two subjects. You can track those down in the resources as well as that article I mentioned, Bathed in the Breath by um, Tanisaro Piku. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website